This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith and I'm at a high school. It's lunchtime, which makes this a perfect time to do a little people watching, which is what we're doing. And as you'd expect, you know, the kids are they're they're milling around, they're already clumping up into their to their groups of friends. Um, I guess when I was in high school I would have called this clicks. Yeah. Clicks. Um, and that fits because on this edition of B-Side, we're talking about the things that bring us together, the things that separate us, what makes us in or out. Um, and so this, this edition of the show is called One of Us. And I'm here with a teacher at this high school named Anta. Hi. So what do you teach? So I teach uh, leadership. I also teach stagecraft and PE. Can you describe this school? Um, it's a small, smaller community. It's uh, nice and tight where the teachers actually know the students. They know them pretty well. So I know when they're kind of feeling down or out or they're feeling like they're amped up. or uh, Everyone basically knows each other's names here. It's small enough that that happens. So we were talking about um, cliques. Are there cliques at this small high school? Uh, definitely in the high school setting and definitely here. So uh, can, you, can you sort of break it down for me? Yeah, well, we have uh, cliques that break into racial uh, racial groups, and we also have cliques that break into like um, commonalities, uh, things that they like, type of music they listen to. Or there's the skaters that they all hang out and they show what skills they've learned on their their, their skateboards. Something they have all in common. So sports really can define people, and you know, it seems like being a sports fan can define whether you're in or you're out. Yeah. Um, what, what happens is it's what's in common. That's your click. Yeah, I've got to say, I uh, moved to Columbus, Ohio like two years ago, and I had no idea what it was to be into sports. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've had friends that, that came from Texas, that came from like Ohio, from like the East Coast, Sports is that's the thing there. Like over in like California on the West Coast, we're more laid back. It's like, oh, you you don't do the sports thing. Well, that's fine. But over there, like Texas is football, you know. And then over in the East Coast, same same thing. Like they they live and breathe like the sports. Like you don't know what's going on. And where have you been? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's what B side contributor Allison Rom discovered. She moved to Columbus, Ohio recently, and she didn't know what a Buckeye was. And, 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 you know, I didn't know until I moved there. A buckeye is a small nut that, that is poisonous and um, is also the mascot for the Ohio State University, the Buckeyes. Uh, they have a, a mascot named Brutus, who is basically a man with a nut for a head. And, and they are so into it. And Allison, she didn't quite get it. So she went out, uh, went out on the town in Columbus, Ohio, on the night of the national football championship game, the game between the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Florida Gators, and this is what she found. I would rather clean than sit through a football game. When I moved to Columbus, this idiosyncrasy became socially crippling. Buckeye fans take their team very, very seriously. Right. For the most part, anywhere in Ohio, um, you're an Ohio State fan. I mean, even if not going to the college or not, you're either Ohio State fan or you might as well move somewhere else. So. 
Brian Kurtz is the proud trophy manager at the Buckeye Hall of Fame Cafe. On the night of the big game between the Buckeyes and Gators, the Ohio State student introduced me to this massive scarlet and gray play lab. Uh, one of the main features that we have here is um, one of Archie Griffin's Heisman trophies here that uh, we have on display. Tell me about it. I'm sorry, I don't know this guy's name. Archie Griffin, you said? Yeah, he uh, played for Ohio State, and he is the only one to ever win two Heisman trophies consecutive back-to-back. So um, he's definitely somebody that, if you're a Buckeye fan, you know who Archie Griffin is. Buckeye fans don't think too hard about things like the fact that their beloved team is named for a small, poisonous nut. And they love to sing this annoying song about Sloopy, but even the super fans don't know what it's about. I noticed Bobby Dick across the room because he was wearing a shiny starched red jersey and a solemn expression of Buckeye devotion. Who is Sloopy? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out. He's the most famous Ohio State character ever. Nobody knows who he is. He's a mythological creature. Wrong. Superfan Bobby, you might know all the words, but shouldn't you know the truth? Hang on Sloopy was a number one pop song in 1965 when the marching band started playing it. Now, fans do choreographed hand moves at the gates. It's like they've been doing the Macarena for 42 years, and if Bobby had his way, they'd never stop. It, it gets everybody involved. It's simple enough. You can be dumb and do it. You can be drunk and do it, or you can be normal and do it. It gets everybody involved. The kids to the drunk adults. Who cares? Bobby the super fan is easygoing, but there's no joking around when it comes to Buckeye pride. If you have any anything to do with Ohio State, whether you like the team or not, you go to one game, you see the tradition. After the game, everybody sings Carmen, Ohio with the team and the band, and I'm getting chills talking about it right now, just thinking about it. Every game I've been to and every experience I've had like this. And... So I'm walking into the Jerome Schottenstein Center now. It's a big arena on campus at OSU. And it looks like there's going to be a pretty decent crowd of people here, actually. Let's check it out. All right! About 4,000 scarlet and gray indoctrinates filled the bleachers that night to watch the game on campus in the arena. But if you're thinking that Buckeye fever is an illness that only students and alums catch, think again. I ran into the newly inaugurated Governor Ted Strickland, a graduate of Asbury College in Kentucky. He was still on his feet after an incredible kickoff. Yeah, I've uh, sort of lost control a couple of times and jumped up and down and made a gubernatorial fool out of myself, but it's been fun. Of course, Strickland is the first Democratic governor in this state since 1991. For a politician not to support the Buckeyes here would be like a president wearing a flag as a diaper. Still, I asked Governor Strickland what fanhood means to him. Oh, you just, you just commit yourself to the scarlet and gray. It's sort of like marriage, you know? Give heart, soul, and, uh, and you'll be readily accepted as a, as a genuine Buckeye fan. The Buckeye Nation has emotional, not physical borders. Within Columbus limits, but far from the maddening crowd, Jenny Seek quietly read a book in the Cup of Joe Cafe. No red or gray in sight. I'm not a Buckeye fan. I could care less. She's a native, born and raised. But at some point in Jenny's young life, she decided Buckeye culture was not for her. Do you ever feel a sense of that you're not a part of the group? 
No, I want to get as far away from it as possible. It's loud and it's noisy and it's annoying. Individual fans don't phase Jenny. In fact, her best friend is a huge fan. But as a grad student in psychology, she's had time to form some theories about groupthink. I think that, um, that a lot of times people in groups lose their individuality, and that, that's a negative way of looking at it. Groups can also really make people um, spur on ideas and get excited about things. If I were going to be in a group, it just wouldn't be something that was sports-oriented <laughs> at all. And late in the third quarter, with Ohio State losing hope and points, I found another outcast, John Runkle from Spokane, Washington. He came here for business school. People warned him that they love him some football out here, but he says he's never quite adjusted to it. And like, you know, in business school, there's a lot of networking events you have to go to, and that's all they ever talk about. And it's kind of like affected my ability to create network links because I can't talk about the Buckeyes. Does everyone here at the party know that you're not a Buckeye fan? I've gotten to the point, it's almost like coming out and saying, okay, I admit it, I'm not a Buckeye fan. And it takes courage to do, but I mean, I don't care. I'm not going to fake it. <laughs> Ohio State lost the noble battle to Florida that night, 14 to 41. Buckeye fever marches on, but I'm going to join another nation, the same one as John Runkle. I too will not fake it anymore. I just don't care. B-Side Radio, I'm Allison Rahm. This is B-Side, and we are at a high school with a high school teacher named Anta, who is sort of giving us a tour of this school and the cliques or the groups or, or how, it, how it breaks down. And, and I'm wondering, does language or heritage have anything to do with it? Oh, definitely. You have actually groups that, that grew up in uh, certain areas that they actually hang out with each other or they group with each other. They have their slang and they have their, their speak. So they tend to speak um, using their slang. Or even groups that like speak Spanish or just kids that just came over um, from, from Mexico or from certain parts of the world, they all tend to hang together because they feel a little more comfortable and they speak, um, they speak Spanish, with, uh, Spanish with each other. Wow, I mean, that's just, there's just the language differences, yeah. the, the, the terminology differences, it's, it's slang differences, it's amazing. You know, language can be such a defining factor. It can really decide who's us and who's them. Um, our next story comes from Ethan Lindsay, who's in Berlin, and and has learned that language can can be a huge barrier. It's estimated that 30,000 Americans live in Berlin now. That's out of a city of 3 million. And the number of Americans is growing. Just last month, none other than the New York Times described Berlin as like New York City in the 1980s. The air crackles with the creativity that comes only from a city in transition. But probably more important than even the creativity is that the cost of living here is unbelievably low. For instance, I pay about half the rent I did in Los Angeles for a place twice the size. And I think I had a cheap place in L.A. So it's not a shock to hear English cell phone conversations on the subways. 
we can get up here and get the tram, but we can get up in the next stop and get the tram. Or when you go out, especially in the younger, more artsy areas of the city. Almost every week we have a get-together at a bar in my neighborhood. I guess the bar can seat 25 people. And at our Thursday gatherings, we sometimes roll in 15 Americans strong. So I'm pretty sure actual Germans now avoid coming around on Thursday nights to steer clear of the loud Americans <laughs> in the barrage of English. An American friend of mine, Kristen Allen, says English probably wouldn't be all that offensive. But we speak English. That's Deutsch, German, plus English. It's like Spanglish, but sounds way uglier. Which is more for humor, and there are some things that you can express better in one language or the other, and there's certain German concepts that just, they're easier to visualize um, when you say them in German. I won't lie to you, it's really very comforting to speak one's mother tongue when stranded in a foreign land. But I can't help notice that all this English has some negative spillover effects. See, most Germans learn English in grade school. So now, even when I try to practice my German or blend in with the locals, well, that doesn't work. Last week, I was at my local coffee shop. And when I ordered my coffee in German, they asked me what size coffee I wanted in English. Small, medium, or large. My first thought was that my German was the problem. I'm not fluent. On a good day, I maybe could have a rewarding conversation with a fifth grader. So I asked my German teacher, Frau Schultz, to grade my coffee shop order on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being indistinguishable from a local. So, uh, ich hätte gern ein Café. She says the only problem that she heard was my accent, which I admit isn't up to snuff. But she says Germans know that. They know that their accent can sometimes be the biggest obstacle, just as native German speakers have a problem with the American accent. I think that California has the greatest potential. It is the greatest place in the world without any doubt. So let's say I sound something like Arnold Schwarzenegger in reverse. Well, my German teacher says it's not my language skills that are the problem. She suggests maybe Germans are showing off. She says many Germans think the American education system is terrible and that Americans, as a rule, aren't international. But Kristen and I, well, we've never felt like it's an insult. Oh, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of Americans are able to take the easy way out and not learn the language as well because Germans are so eager to practice their English, which used to offend me, but now I think they're just trying to be polite. No matter what, the language barrier forces you to make one of two choices. You can submit to the culture. I've spent 10 minutes trying to convince the guy at my video rental store that I really would prefer to speak German with him. But that conversation was in English. Or you can try to affect change. With my downstairs neighbor, I've tried to consciously and forcefully speak in German no matter what even when I didn't know the word for post office box. I've tried it both ways. The most annoying experience was in a Starbucks, where I think they're used to Americans only speaking English. And I ordered in German, and I don't think I made any mistakes. And even though the waitress or the barista, whatever they're called, continued to speak English to me, I just spoke in German because I was really annoyed. So there's a back and forth of a German speaking mm-hmm. English. And, and my German becoming more forceful as the short conversation went on. Um, but she did not speak German back to me, so. (laughs) Like Kristen, I've accepted my fate here. I will never be fully accepted as a Berliner or as a fluent speaker 
no matter how many German words I learn. But then again, maybe the Germans are right to look at me as a total outsider. I'm not planning on staying in Germany permanently anyway. For B-Side, I'm Ethan Lindsay. This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and we're at a high school lunchtime, and I'm here with a teacher named Anta. Are, are there ever disputes about who's in a group, or, or like, I guess what I'm getting at here is legitimacy, or, or who, you know, who... You know. Yeah, it's like in some of these cliques, it's like, oh, if you live from this area, oh, you're not from you're not from the hundreds, or you're not from the you're not from the the twos, or you know. And it, they talk about their neighborhoods, about like, oh, you're not really from there, so you can't talk for us, or you can't speak for us, or like, you didn't go to this school, so how do you know this? And it, it, that's where the legitimacy comes in. It's sort of like you you haven't lived it, so why are you talking? This question of legitimacy goes way beyond, you know, who you hang out with in high school. Um, Producer Molly Peterson went to Oklahoma to find out or try to find out what it is or who it is, what, what makes someone a member of the federally recognized Cherokee tribe. Members of the Cherokee Nation, the one recognized by the U.S. government, get access to tribal health care and license plates. But what holds more meaning for the people I met in Oklahoma is the green wallet card tribal members get. So who is and should be a Cherokee? Don't a doggle dahi until we meet again. Wado, thank you in Cherokee. Wado, yes. <laughs> Maybe you'd think Marilyn Van. Behind big round glasses, her eyes blinked at me very earnestly when she taught me Cherokee phrases on a park bench. Except the Cherokee Nation is considering excluding her. Marilyn's a descendant of freedmen, former slaves who lived on Cherokee lands. They don't necessarily have Indian blood, but 19th century Cherokees considered freedmen part of their community. That is what I am. That's what I have known since I was a small child, five years old, that I'm a Cherokee. These are my people. I've known that my people came over the trail. It's, I don't want to say that having a citizenship card, um, you know, for instance, if the citizenship card was taken away tomorrow through, you know, some kind of fraud, um, that I'm going to be less, uh, you know, of a Cherokee, but... You feel differently when you were recognized. Marilyn Van says Oklahomans look at her chocolate-colored skin and don't see an Indian. So, okay, what does a Cherokee look like? Jackie Bob Martin is a councilman for the Cherokee Nation. He's part Indian, part white. His own skin is a sunburn seen through coffee. He told me where he lives, people are suspicious of those who look different. And I get a lot of complaints uh, from our citizens. I can go to the clinic and see people in the waiting room that does not look like Cherokees, you know what I'm saying. What the real gripe is going to be if this group of people, and I don't like to mention names because I don't want to sound like a racist, when they see those people sitting in line in front of the full-blood types, I'll call them, I guarantee you they'll be in my beating on my door every day. I also met blonde, blue-eyed Cherokees, Jackie Bob says there are folks now who are one 1,024th Cherokee, traced back through blood. He supports limiting membership to only blood Cherokees. He's part of a growing and bitter fight being waged within the tribe. 
Like Jackie Bob, another card-carrying citizen I met named Linda Jones is old enough to remember a time when being Indian was shameful. Linda and I talked at her church. She attends Christian service Sunday morning and evening. Her grandmother didn't have a tribal card. Linda says she was hiding from her Indian self. She changed her name. She didn't want to be called by her Indian name. But I grew up with her doing some of the things that she learned. So I grew up seeing some of the medicine that she did and some of the peace pipe that she would do. <laughs> so I grew up with a, her talking Cherokee, but we didn't understand it, and we would, used to laugh. And we had no interest in trying to learn Cherokee language back then. We just thought, what is she talking, you know? So I was around all of that, but didn't consider it that important at the time. Now Linda Jones is proud of her Cherokee connection. She's a descendant of freedmen. Her skin color identifies her in Oklahoma as black. But Jackie Bob Martin and many others in the tribe, including the chief, say culture isn't enough to make you belong. The Cherokee Nation is supposed to vote on who's in and who's out sometime this year. You! Everyone I met who's a card-carrying Cherokee, from Freedman's descendant to full blood, everyone mentioned two pretty good ways to know who belongs in the nation. The first is tribal practice, like this stomp song. I'm told that Cherokee Indians still do stomps, but I wasn't invited to the sacred grounds, didn't even know who to ask to find them. The other, I was told, is language. I met just one person who's fluent. His name is Cedric Sunray, and while he's got Cherokee blood, on paper he's part of a branch of the Choctaws. Cedric Sunray teaches the Cherokee language, and he doesn't think much of the Cherokee Nation's membership politics. Basically what you've had with Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma is you've had a tribe of 40,000 people that were all Indians. Now the tribe has exploded. It's 240 to 260,000 tribal members. Well, the majority of those people aren't Indians. What is understood by Indian, Cedric Sunray says, is different than Cherokee, different still than tribal member. He says the little green card everyone's fighting over is a substitute for what's being lost, what's been lost, through neglect, through politics, through assimilation. It doesn't tell him who's true to Cherokee tradition. Real Cherokee people are people that believe in Gadugi and that spirit of cooperation, that go to their traditional Cherokee churches, that go to the stomp grounds, to places like Stokes and other places like this, you know, and that, and people that have historical ties and historical relationship with that traditional element. Those people don't need you or me or the federal government to know that they're one of the tribe. Cedric Sunray says they know, and for them, that's enough. For B-Side, I'm Molly Peterson. Identity uh, makes people comfortable. They, you know who you are or you know who you are affiliated with and you have a, a sense of, of sec- a security. Um, not knowing who you are or not knowing who you can belong to it gives you the jitter, especially if you're in, in a high school. That is uh, Unta. He's a teacher here at this high school, and I'm Tamara Keith. You're listening to B-Side. Um, peer pressure. Does that that exist at high school? It did when I was in high school. It's still here. It's still here, and it's alive and kicking. I don't think it, I don't think that's ever 
going to go away. It's peer pressure and drugs, peer pressure and not doing your homework, peer pressure and going to Jamba Juice after school, you know, and not telling your parents or um, peer pressure into going out with that guy just because everyone else went out with him. Uh, you know, it's just, um, it doesn't end. You know, the funny thing is, um, it really doesn't stop with high school. No, not at all. <laughs> and and it goes beyond college. It goes into grown-up life. Um, Anna Cranage Conathan has found that, you know, all of her friends got married at the same time. Everybody has houses. Now everybody has babies. They sneak into my head with simple, innocuous, even pedestrian questions. Isn't she cute? Do you want to hold him? They disarm me with sweet lies. You're a natural. I think she likes you. Sometimes it's scary and gross. Oh, here's a towel. He just spit up on your shoulder and there, there's a little bit in your hair, right? Yep, right there. No, 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 she's fine. That's her soft spot. Oh, 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 don't move. His diaper's leaking in your lap. After about 20 minutes, they get a little more intense. Want to see my C-section scar? They tell me things I don't want to know. When I cough, <laughs> I pee in my pants a little bit now. They teach me words I don't like. Words women shouldn't learn until they're already pregnant. Tubal ligation, episiotomy, vaginoplasty, boppy. I give them back the baby and tell them I have a cold. I'm lying. Then, once the baby is settled comfortably in their lap, they ask about me. But not the now me. The theoretical future me. When are you guys going to have a baby? Suddenly, they're Barbara Walters. Do you think you'll do attachment parenting in the family bed? How old are you? You know your eggs are dying, right? I sneak into the guest room and I call my cell phone. I tell them something has come up and I must go, but we should do this again soon. I'm lying. Someday this will be you, they tell me as I leave. I know they're smiling when they say it, but it feels vindictive. What happened to the girl I went to college with who used to funnel vodka and sleep around? Now, she scares me. Somewhere along the line, baby went from being a word that inspired a warm smile on my face to a word that sends ice water running down my spine. Quite literally, a four-letter word. I blame them. The mothers. With their mommy boards and books and digital cameras and home movies and portable breast pumps... I hear them coming for me. And always with more questions. What are you waiting for? Did you know your husband is great with babies? Are you still on those antidepressants? The endless questions that feel like pointed accusations, but accusations of what? Have they pegged me as a baby hater and they want me to fess up? Do they fear I'm concealing a shameful secret sterility and they want to separate me from the fertile herd? Or maybe... It's reverse psychology. Oh, Jesus, how did I not see this before? They know me, know I'm stubborn, know that I refuse to be told what I can and can't do. They know I'm a wuss with a narrow, low-hanging threshold for pain. I'm disorganized and often late. I procrastinate, and I'm hideously impatient. I recall their looks of dismay as I screeched instructions to the dog during positive reinforcement puppy training. And I love Finn with my whole heart, but if he annoys me, I banish him to the crate. Sometimes... I forget he's in there. Holy ovulating reproductive system, that's it, isn't it? They think I'm going to be a lousy mother. They've been trying to spare me, spare a fertilized egg from an uncertain and rocky future with a lunatic. With every child born, they tried to tell me, but 
it's it's too late. The sperm has been cast. The egg has curtsied. Yes, it's true. Now I'm pregnant. And I am one of them. Anna Kranich Conathan lives in Washington, D.C. And that just about wraps up this edition of B-Side. I think lunch is almost over here at the high school. Yeah, I got to get to my leadership class pretty soon. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Anta. And um, just some credits here. This edition of B-Side was produced by Molly Peterson with production assistance from Matthew McCleskey out in Washington, D.C., who helped record Anna's story. Um, I am the host and senior producer, Tamara Keith. Please check out our website. It's bsideradio.org, the letter B-S-I-D-E radio.org, or our MySpace page, myspace.com slash radio b-side. We would love to be your MySpace friend. Me too. (laughs) Thanks a lot. 